Zechariah 9. We have a single verse here uh, that I'd like to draw your attention to that's powerful and full of so much. Uh, We could spend weeks just talking about this single verse. Um, But it's a word of prophecy. So far in our study, we've been kind of tackling the eight visions of Zechariah, and they've, they've been quite kind of amazing and a little crazy until you really see the detail and what it means. And then you realize, man, it's about the end times and prophecy and stuff like that. Uh, much of Zechariah is about prophecy, um, both uh, of the first coming of Christ and also of the second coming of Christ. And we have a little bit of both of that in this single verse of prophecy. It's Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Now, by the way, before I read this verse, some of you are like, maybe already uh, saying, oh, you Athey Creekers, you guys are into prophecy. And the answer is guilty as charged. We are into prophecy because the Bible speaks about prophecy. And if you read the whole Bible, um, you're, one fourth of this book that we hold is Bible prophecy. Do you understand that? I, I always marvel that there's um, ch- churches and pastors that say, well, we don't really do Bible prophecy because it's too, too divisive. Have you ever heard that one? It's too divisive or too complicated or whatever. Why would we ignore part of the Bible because it's divisive? The Bible's divisive. Jesus is divisive. Jesus even taught, if you follow me, your mother, father, sister, brother, they're gonna bail on you if you follow me. Like, like sometimes following Jesus and being into his word, what well, causes division sometimes? But we don't ignore important parts of the Bible just because people can't figure it out or because they think it's divisive or too complicated. Um, Some people try to say, well, all of Bible prophecy has been fulfilled, so it doesn't even matter. Those sections of the Bible, rip it out of the pages because it doesn't matter to you and I. Oh, how sad, how poor the church has become because they don't talk about, you know, it's interesting going verse by verse, chapter and chapter through the Bible is so cool because um, it makes us, it forces us as a church to cover scriptures that some people wouldn't even wanna cover or talk about. Um, it, it, you know, uh, I, I understand, and there's some good churches that don't teach verse by verse. I'm not saying you're a bad church if you don't do that. I'm just saying, can I highly recommend that churches and pastors and preachers start kind of going back to the, the verse by verse because it's the whole Bible. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And that's what churches need to be doing, I believe. Um, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So if you do that, you're gonna be forced to talk about one fourth of the Bible that includes Bible prophecy. Um, a lot of those churches that don't do uh, through the Bible that you'll never hear them teach from the book of Zechariah because it's mostly about Bible prophecy. But the church is better off when we read the whole Bible. Wouldn't you agree? The whole scripture, it's all about the whole Bible. Well, anyway, all that to say, this verse is one of those verses. Check it out. Zechariah chapter nine, uh, verse nine is our text for the day. It says in Zechariah 9, nine, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. There's a bunch of prophecies in here about the coming Messiah. Uh, Now the word Messiah is a word that we Gentiles in the Christian church, we say Messiah and we hear angels sing in the background. We're talking about the Messiah. But if you're a Hebrew person, the word Messiah means king. 
And they called David the Messiah and King Saul the Messiah and any of their kings, that was kind of what they called it. But um, so when you're talking, I remember I, I came to this understanding when I was in Israel one time and one of my Jewish friends was saying, Brett, Messiah is a word we use all the time. It's like, you know, the king. Um, but the Jews would agree there is a Messiah that is kind of the Messiah, the one that's coming that they're looking for, that they, they um, hope for. The Jews to this day are looking for the Messiah. The problem is when the Messiah really came, they missed him. Why did the Jews miss the coming of Jesus the Messiah? Well, I think our verse here uh, allows us to talk about some of this stuff and kind of kick it around. Um, and I hope, hopefully we'll be able to help you with some of this stuff because it's important that we don't make the same mistake. We can learn from a mistake that the Jews made. And, and we have to be careful to uh, remember the Jews are smarter than we are in, in a lot of reasons. That's why they're God's chosen people. Uh, they're just in rebellion. And I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But, but this idea of the Messiah coming, there's a bunch of things that we can't ignore. You could do a whole week worth of teaching just on these three attributes that are described for us in our verse here. Um, check this out. There's three things, attributes about Jesus. And the first one, this Messiah that's coming, is that he's just. Um, it says right there that the, the daughter of Jerusalem, you know, is to shout out because it says, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just. Does that sound good, a leader who is just? Do we need that today? Man, our world, we've got so much corruption in our world of leadership, whether you're talking about you know, it's so easy as Americans, well, the corruption of leadership in Russia or in Ukraine or in, in uh, you know, uh, wherever, uh, Brazil. Uh, but, but we can't say it anymore. The United States is as corrupt as they come. Our country is corrupt. Maybe you saw even, you know, um, you know uh, the, the attorney of Hillary came out and was in, had, under oath, had to say some stuff. And now Hillary's in hot water because the whole Russian collusion thing that cost the United States millions and millions of dollars and years of consternation and all kinds of trouble, uh, it was a fabrication. We all knew that. Um, but it, we learned from her attorney in under oath just a couple of days ago. It was a big, big news item if you're not a news junkie. And also there's half the news that will never say that they're sweeping that under the rug. But it, it was clear that she, she kind of orchestrated the whole thing. And, and it's funny because whether it's Hillary or Trump or whoever, I just find the whole political thing is very corrupt. There's corruption on all angles of every, it, it's almost like you have to be good at corruption to be qualified. Uh, to be a leader in our country these days because it's the way you play the game. And I just see corruption everywhere you look in the world and that's what sounds so good. When Jesus the Messiah comes, he's gonna be just and the world's not even gonna know, know what to do with that. Wow, a just king, that means justice for the world and that's what Jesus is gonna bring. But the second attribute that's listed here is salvation. Um, Jesus declared himself when he came the first time, his first coming, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Salvation is of Jesus, the Messiah. And it says that right here. It says, behold, thy king comes to thee. He is just and having salvation. Now, it depends on what translation you have. Is it salvation for him or is it salvation for us? Even my margin, if you have a King Jimmy like I do, some of your margins will read this. It says that Jesus is uh, saving himself. And some of you might say, well, that's great for him, but what about us? But the idea is, one thing you have to understand, when the Messiah comes, um, he would die on the cross for our sins, 
And they would say, he saved others, but can he save himself? And the answer is yes, he can. As he died on the cross, he was then buried, and then he rose from the grave. He even said, if you destroy this body three days, I will raise it up. And by his resurrection, he's called in the New Testament, the first fruit of the resurrection, which means because he was resurrected, we get to resurrect. We win because he won. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of a nuance here where it says he brings salvation. Uh, and the question, depending on what translation you have, to himself or to the world? And the answer is yes, both. Um, that's the idea. When Jesus saved himself by raising up from the dead, he in, in so doing saved us from our sins. Um, I love this idea of salvation. I can't talk about this enough. And if you're new to Christianity, this is the number one topic for you. That you're a sinner deserving of death and hell and so am I. But there's good news. That's why it's called gospel. The fancy word gospel means good news. And the good news is that God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And you gotta believe, have faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So the first thing you do, repent of your sins. Acknowledge that you're a sinner before God. And then when you acknowledge that, Lord, I'm a sinner, then, then accept the work of the cross. By, by Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. So that's the main thing today. You gotta, you gotta see that as the most important thing we could ever talk about is if you're not a Christian, you're still in your sin. And the Bible says that when you die or if the rapture of the church happens, we'll be left behind or after the tribulation, like if you never accept Christ and the work of the cross, then you will be judged for your sins. And the sad news is the wages of sin is eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So don't miss that. If you're not a Christian, man, um, today after the service, there's gonna be some pastors right up in the front who would love to pray with you. And you can accept Christ, confess your faith in Christ, and, uh, and the Lord will forgive you for your sins. It's the salvation from Jesus, the Messiah. That's so important, so huge. If you're online, by the way, and you wanna be saved, call the church office. We'd have pastors pray with you. We'll send you a Bible, whatever you need. We'd like to get you set up and ready to roll. So that's huge, the gospel message. So the, the attributes about Jesus and this messianic verse that is foretelling the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. He's just salvation, but the last one is kind of interesting. He's, he's called lowly, lowly, which means meek and humble. Did you know that Jesus only made one autobiographical statement about his character and his nature? Um, and it's there in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, where he talked about, I, or pardon me, not Sermon on Mount, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus talked about, you know, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he said, take my yoke upon me, learn to me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. That, that's what Jesus said about his personality and nature. Man, that goes against everything. Our world wants you to be prideful and arrogant and, you know, puff yourself up and let people think you're an influencer and that you're kind of a big deal. Um, but as it turns out, that's just ugliness. That's humanity. Jesus came meek and lowly. Now, this is interesting. And this is, this is where I think the Jews made a big mistake. Um, and we have to be humble about the Jews' mistake. I'll talk about that in a second. But the Jews made a big mistake. How did they miss the Messiah? Because the first coming of Christ was foretold in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. There were more than 300 specific prophecies about the, the first coming of Christ. How in the world did they miss it? They seem to be almost purposefully naive 
about the first coming of Christ. For crying out loud, the Babylonian Magi were coming, wondering more about Jesus the Messiah than the Jews were. Do you remember how the story kind of falls out? The, the, the wise men come from the East and they come and, you know, uh, and they consult with the Jewish, you know, leadership of that time and say, your Messiah is supposed to come. Do you, tell us what city he's supposed to be born in. Cause we've heard the, that the Hebrew Bible has a prophecy and the Jews are like, ah, it's somewhere in Bethlehem uh, is where he's gonna be. That's what they said. And they said, okay, thanks. And the, and the wise men went and sought out um, Jesus in Bethlehem. While the Jews just sat around, <laughs> yeah, somewhere in Bethlehem, good luck finding him. But they could care less. In fact, Herod the Great wanted to find him more than the Jews did. They even, Herod asked you know, the wise men, where did you find him? And the wise men kind of gave him a, a line because they realized Herod wasn't wanting to worship the Messiah, but wanted to kill him. Because the word Messiah means king and Herod didn't want another king around. So he was gonna off the Messiah, that was his plan. But isn't it amazing? The Bible gave the Jews all this stuff, including Zechariah 9, 9, that says he will come riding on the colt of, an, of a donkey. That would be Palm Sunday when Jesus would ride his triumphal entry, as it's called, riding into Jerusalem as the King of Kings, the Messiah. And there was a tiny, tiny little group of people saying, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you know, Palm Sunday. But most of the Jews were saying, yeah, whatever. In fact, the religious leaders, do you remember what they did when Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday? The religious leaders came to Jesus and said, hey, tell these people to stop saying this. And the reason they were saying that, they knew that these people were claiming that this is the Messiah, but the religious leaders, you're not the Messiah, so tell them to stop saying that. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if, if I stop these guys, the rocks will cry out and worship. Talk about a rock concert. Whew, that'd be, I wish they would have stopped. I would have liked to see that. The Rolling Stones, uh, you know, <laughs> different version. Um, but, all that to say, uh, these, you know, this Jesus was the Messiah and the Jews were rejecting him. In fact, after a few days after the triumphal entry, there's Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate and, um, and the people are crying out, crucify him, we will not have this man rule over us. They despised him and they rejected him. Interesting, that's what Isaiah the prophet talked about. See, the Jews, when they were thinking for their Messiah, they wanted, they wanted a Messiah that was large and in charge. But our verse says he's actually gonna be lowly. Question, do you ever read verses in the Bible that you have to admit they're true, but you kind of don't like them? So there's a mental game we play when we read the Bible. We read the verses we kind of don't really like and we go, yeah, 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 whatever. And we kind of sweep that verse under the rug because I don't really like what that says. And so you love the verses you love, but then the verses you don't understand or don't really want to understand, you're kind of like, yeah, whatever, we'll kind of forget that's in the Bible and we won't talk about that and we won't do sermons about that verse. Have you ever done that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> um, but people do that, that's, that's human nature, but the Jews did that and guess how they did it? When they would read in their Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the prophecies of the coming Messiah, they were excited. And they are to this day. See, they, they still look for the Messiah. When you go to Jerusalem and Israel today, you still see these big billboards. It's always funny. I always like to show the billboards when we go to Israel because you'll see these billboards saying, Rabbi so-and-so is the Messiah. And they're claiming that this guy's the Messiah. And every time I go, there's a new guy they're claiming, this is, I think we think this is the Messiah. One guy was there, the billboard was still up. And I, I asked um, you know, my buddy, Steve, and I said, so is that guy, they believe he's the Messiah? And I said, that's a fairly old billboard. He was caught in some adulterous thing. And so they don't think he's the Messiah anymore. The billboard's still up. 
Uh, it's like, it's embarrassing. They're still looking for the Messiah, but they missed the Messiah in the first coming of Jesus. Now, how did they miss it? They took the scriptures talking about his first coming and they swept those under the rug because the Jews, and I don't blame them for this. I mean, this is, this is probably what we would have done in their shoes or sandals. We would have said, uh, yeah, we don't like those either because they needed a king that was a conqueror, that was powerful. They were hoping for a, a real powerful king. And so when they would read a verse like this, they would sort of, you know, eat the fish, but spit out the bones, which would be a bad thing to do with a verse like this. They loved the first part, shout, O daughter, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Um, behold, your king comes. Yeah, our king, they like that part. And he will come, who will be just. Oh, we need justice. Because the, like in the first century, the Jews were dealing with all kinds of injustice. The Jews had been treated horribly for millennia, enslaved in Egypt for 450 years, under the iron fist of Rome for almost 200 years, um, like the Romans were, you know, just brutal and, and enslaved the Jews. Did you know they dragged all kinds of Jews to Rome? Um, who built the Colosseum in Rome? Jews, slaves in Rome. Like it's, people don't talk about that in history, but that's what happened. Be that as it may, the Jews, they didn't want someone lowly riding on a colt. That's the part of the verse they say, yeah, whatever. We like the part where it's a king coming and we like that he's just. And we also like that he has salvation because we need salvation from the Romans. So it was the way, it was sort of a lens that the Jews would look at their Old Testament Hebrew Bible looking for their Messiah. And they loved, you know, the, was he lowly or was he a reigning king? Which one was it? And the Jews, they didn't realize he would come in two advents. That is two separate comings. They didn't know that. And I can't blame them. Uh, we, we have the luxury of looking at it in hindsight. So the, the prophecies about Jesus' first coming tend to be more the lowly stuff because he came the first time humbly. He wasn't a conquering king. He came as a carpenter from Nazareth. Um, he didn't come to judge the world. He came to be judged by the world in his first coming. Was he lowly or reigning king? And so there's scriptures, you know, like that we could talk about. Like when uh, Zachariah says that he was lowly, uh, like our, our verse here today, uh, and he was riding on the colt of the foal of a donkey. Um, you think, is that stuff the Jews embraced? They didn't embrace that part. That's why they missed the Messiah. They, even when he's riding in on a colt, it didn't mean anything to them because they swept that scripture under the rug. Same thing we do. Um, they liked verses like from Jeremiah. Like in Jeremiah where it says, you know, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. That's another name for the Messiah. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. See, they loved this stuff. So when they were looking for the Messiah during the time of Christ, they were looking for a king that was gonna reign and prosper. Um, was he uh, a suffering servant or was he a conquering king? That's, that's what the Jews, they didn't know the suffering servant part because they didn't care to really think about it that much. Where did you see the suffering servant part in the Old Testament? Well, the Messianic scripture of Isaiah 52, verse 14 speaks of the Messiah saying, as many were astonished at the, his visage or the way he looked was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. This is the King Jimmy way of saying, he was beaten beyond recognition marred, wounded um, more than any other person. Like you couldn't even recognize him because he was beaten so badly. By the way, 
Have you ever wondered why people had a hard time recognizing Jesus after he rose from the grave? There's a lot of theories and stuff like that. One theory is possible if this prophecy is true, which it is. We know Jesus was beaten. He had his back whipped with a flagellum. He had a crown of thorns smashed on his head. I mean, he had a lot of scars and wounds. Some people believe that this Isaiah passage says he was so scarred and wounded that in his resurrection, question, was his scars still there after he rose from the grave? Yes. Remember, Thomas said, unless I can put my finger in the hole of his, Jesus like, okay, check it out. There's my hole in my hand. Uh, put your finger in. Um, and uh, that's an interesting thing that Jesus was scarred and maybe that's why they didn't recognize him. And it was only after he started talking, they're like, oh, you're the most, you are Jesus. But the Jews, they weren't looking for a wounded, scarred, bloodied Messiah. They wanted a conquering king. Um, they liked what Daniel would say, like the book of Daniel, speaking of you know, the coming Messiah. Um, in uh, Daniel chapter seven, verse 26 through 27, um, speaking of the Antichrist and then, then the, the true Christ. Uh, but look at, ver let's jump ahead to verse 27. It says, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. That's the Jews whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Speaking of the Messiah, that all the kingdoms and dominions and powers will serve the Messiah. The Jews are like, yeah, we like that idea. Our Jewish Messiah, the whole world will have to serve him. So it's like they would pick and choose their scriptures. Now, what that, what that does is it makes it so they don't understand the wounded, humble, lowly, riding on a colt scriptures because they didn't know he would do that in his first coming. But they love the idea of the conquering king and the powerful leader, king of kings, lord of lords. Um, will he come to be the king or will he come to be killed? And the Jews struggled with that. Um, now, here's what's interesting. Uh, those prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, somebody went through and counted how many times those specific prophecies of the first coming were in the Hebrew Bible, 300 in number, uh, right around 300. 300 you know, specific prophecies. One of those is here in Zechariah 9.9 in our text this morning, that he would ride on a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, the king would come like that. Peter Stoner did a, a work called Science Speaks, and he was a mathematician slash scientist who calculated the probability of just eight of those 300 prophecies concerning Jesus, his first coming. Um, what are the probabilities? And he came up with this mathematical number, one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, if you're like me, whenever we got to math and we started seeing the little numbers next to the big numbers, we're like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Uh, I hated this. Um, so fortunately, there's other people that know how to do this. But if you do this, basically, one in 10 to the 17th power is a number that looks kind of like this. The actual, I think the way you would say this is one in 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion, that's, that, that's the number, the odds of that. Are those odds, would you take those odds? Well, some would call those odds almost impossible. That just eight? What do you mean, Brett? Well, like when you talk about probability, did you hear about this person in um, Newsweek? There was this article about um, chances of winning the lottery twice in a day, one in 44 million. Um, but this woman defies the odds. She actually, uh, in the morning, bought a diamond dazzler scratch-off ticket uh, and she won a $10,000 prize. After collecting her prize there in, uh, you know, um, 
in North Carolina. She had to go to Raleigh headquarters to get the money, but she decided to try her luck on the same day just for fun. And so she went and bought a bunch of other lottery tickets, but she ended up winning uh, out of a $4 million pot. She won another $1 million the same day. And the article's like, this is like never gonna happen. The odds are so crazy, impossible. One in 44 million, that's the odds of that. Uh, Not a good odd. And for those of you who like to do the uh, lottery, not recommended, just a heads up. Uh, Not a great way to spend your money. But but let's go back to our number one in 10 to the 17th power or 100 quadrillion, uh, one in 100 quadrillion. What is that like? Well, Peter Stoner in his book, he wrote about like, what does that look like? What are the odds that look like? And he made it understandable. He said, if you take the state of California and you fill it full of nuts, I didn't say anything. What are you guys laughing about? <laughs> Anyways, full of nuts. In fact, California is three feet deep and full of peanuts. You know, the ones with the shell and the two little nuts. Three feet deep, the whole state from the border of Oregon and California all the way to Mexico, California border. And it's full three feet deep. And then you take a, a permanent marker and you put an X on one of those nuts Somewhere in California, it could be in Fresno, could be in Redding, could be in LA, San Diego, who knows? But it's somewhere, you hide it, and it can be at the top, it can be in the middle of the pile, whatever, but you, you hide that. Then, you take an airplane, and you fly over the city, and with you, you brought a little chipmunk. <laughs> and the chipmunk, you bring a little backpack and a little helmet, and, and you, you equip him, and you open the door, and the chipmunk runs out and flies out of the airplane. <gasps> And he's falling, poof, and the parachute opens, and then he lands safely on the ground. And the, the chipmunk reaches down and picks up a nut. The odds of him picking up the nut with the black X on it is one in 10 to the 17th power. Uh, that's, that's the odds of eight of the prophecies of Jesus coming exactly to, to be fulfilled in one person. And eight prophecies weren't fulfilled 300 specific prophecies that he'd be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, ride in on a colt of a donkey, live in Egypt for a while, live in Nazareth. Like there was a bunch of things in the Old Testament specifically spoken of Jesus, prophecies concerning his first coming. The reason that I share this with you is is I love Bible prophecy because it leaves the fingerprint of God on this book that you hold in your hands. Your college professors, pipe puffing cardigan, wearing, they'll say, oh, it's just a book of literature and it's this and that. This book is the inspired word of God. And prophecy is one of the things that leaves a a supernatural mark on the Bible that no other book, no other person actually has been successful in trying to figure out what the future holds. I love that that, that the Bible is full of prophecy, proving its validity. Other people have tried to make predictions there's been some pretty bad predictions. One of my favorites is the prediction, the official from White Star Line, speaking of the firm's newly built flagship Titanic. You know, there in 1912, he declared that the ship was unsinkable. And you guys know the rest of the story on that one. In 1939, that bastion of truth, the New York Times said, the problem with TV in 1939, the problem with television was that people had to glue their eyes to a screen And the average American would never find time for that. (laughs) Wrong. An English astronomy professor said in the early um, 1800s that air travel at high speed would be impossible because everybody knows passengers would suffocate 
if they did that. <laughs> Wrong again. People fly all over the earth all the time. We can go on and on. One of my favorites is Voltaire, uh, the philosopher, uh, contemporary of Isaac Newton, by the way. And they, they would go back and forth a little bit. Isaac Newton said people would travel feet in speeds up to 50 miles an hour or even faster. Um, and the reason Isaac Newton said that was not scientific as much as he said, the Bible says in the book of Daniel chapter 12 that men would go, and if you look at the original Hebrew, it, 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 it says in English, they would go to and fro back and forth over the earth. But the idea is that in rapid speed go from one side of the earth to the other side of the earth. And so Isaac Newton said, for that to happen, men have to go faster than just walking or donkeys or horses or chariots. It's gotta be faster. So he said, it has to be like at least 50 miles an hour. Well, Voltaire said, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows if you go past 35 miles an hour, your heart will stop. That's what Voltaire said, he was wrong. But more famous, and by the way, if you Snopes this one, they'll count this as not true. But actually, and I, I stopped telling the story years ago because, um, because of Snopes. But recently I, I was reading some works of Voltaire and I realized what he said was true. It's just, you have to be really precise in the way you say it. But he predicted that the Bible would be virtually extinct within 50 years of his death. He said, the Bible's on its way to extinction. And he said, you'll only find a Bible in a museum uh, 50 years after I die. As it turns out, some of the same printing presses that he, Voltaire used to print his uh, you know, secular, atheist, humanistic uh, works that he did, um, those same printing presses after he died were used. And, and it's arguable that some of those were actually in his own house that he lived in. Bibles were printed by the thousands by those same printing presses. So not only was he wrong about the Bible, they were printing up Bibles with his printing presses. Great story. Um, you can look that up and uh, you'll have to do some deep digging to find the real truth of that. But um, interesting, predictions are fraught with peril when you start making predictions. But the Bible, that's what prophecy does. In fact, I'd like you to jot down five things <coughs> um, that, um, that we see here uh, in prophecy. Uh, and, and Zechariah 9.9 9 is packed full of Bible prophecy, so it gives us sort of a platform. Number one, the first thing about the Bible and Bible prophecy is it proclaims future events. <coughs> Excuse me. And so um, what, what do you mean, Brett, about future events? Well, um, God claims that this is what sets him apart from all other gods and all other religions. Did you know in Islam, Muhammad only made one prediction that he would return to Jerusalem, but he never did. That's interesting. Jesus made hundreds of predictions and most of them have all come to pass. The ones that haven't are still yet in the future to happen. But you know, Isaiah chapter 46, verse nine and 10, this is what God says about himself. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. In other words, I declare the things that have yet to happen, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46 is saying, God, God says I'm different than all their gods because I know the beginning from the end. I know the story, the whole story and what I say is gonna happen will happen. It's, um, it's, it's powerful prophecy from the Bible. Now. Be careful because there's a doctrine of teaching out there that's wacko called open theism. If you read about open theism, can I just give you a huge red flag and be careful? A guy named Greg Boyd is one of the proponents of open theism. Totally wrong teaching that God doesn't really know the future. 
that you are in charge of your own destiny. Uh, I've been watching a little too much Star Wars, I'm afraid. Um, actually, it's, it's, uh, it's just a wacko teaching. God doesn't know what's gonna happen in the world. He didn't read his Bible. The Bible is full of Bible prophecy. Um, and this is the scripture says that the prophecy is what sets God apart from all the other religions and what have you. Did you know uh, Dr. George Sweeting did a bunch of studies about the, the numbers that are kind of interesting. Um, and I already told you there were 300 references to the first coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, how many references are there to the second coming of Christ? Um, as it turns out, 1,800. 1,800 references to the second coming of Christ. 17 Old Testament books give prominence to the theme of the second coming of Christ, like the book of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel. 17 of the Old Testament books do that. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references uh, to the Lord's return. And, and if you do the math on this, one, uh, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament is speaking about the second coming of Christ. Is it kind of a big deal? Isn't it amazing that churches are just ignoring Bible prophecy and not wanna talk about the second coming of Christ, but they're missing out on a huge part of the Bible. In fact, the book of Revelation of all books that church, many churches avoid, it's the only book of the Bible that promises the people that read that book, what happens to them, anybody? Hello? You'll be blessed. The people that, he said, the people that you know, read this, the churches that read the book of Revelation, you'll get a particular blessing if you do that. Can I just say, our church leadership, we've been praying for the local churches because there's a lot of churches that are not doing well. There's a lot of unhealthy churches and um, people are not coming back after COVID and everybody opened up. People just didn't come back. There's churches closing their doors and it's kind of heartbreaking for us. And, and we're praying for churches and praying that you know, the gospel will be preached. But, but it's amazing to watch these podcasts and all these people trying to find what's happening with the church and they're giving all these reasons and stuff. But from my perspective, I've been kind of making an informal study of what's happening in America with churches. And can I just say, they're missing the point. A lot of people are missing what's going on. There's churches that are failing, but there's a few churches around the country that are booming, busted out of the seams, and they have not enough parking and cars and people are smashed into the buildings and stuff. What's, what's, what's going on? There's a couple things that I've noticed that are happening. One. As it turns out, the churches that teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and it's a very small percentage of the churches in America that are doing that, they're thriving right now. Why is that happening? I think it's because people are kind of done with the fluffy sermonettes for Christianettes. What, what we need today in a day of crisis and trouble, what does God say? And what does the Bible teach? People are hungry for that. So that's the first thing, through the Bible. The second component I've noticed that is often part of a thriving church today is the church that's willing to talk about future events and Bible prophecy. Those churches are the ones that are booming and the other churches are dying and people are leaving because it's not really helping them in the day of trouble. Um, all that to say, I'm not saying that arrogantly. I, I just, I'm just saying, man, if, if there's any pastors out there in America listening to this, um, try teaching through the Bible and don't be afraid to teach Bible prophecy. And you watch, people are hungry for God's word, man. They're hungry. Uh, they don't care what my opinion is or your opinion. They care what, what does God say? And God's the one, according to Isaiah 46, that knows the beginning from the ending. So um, God is the only one that can accurately tell the future. So that's the first one. 
Bible prophecy proclaims the future. Number two, Bible prophecy in sort of the same vein proves that God is God. Um, if there's one thing that you can kind of look at and say is, does God exist and is he real? All you gotta do is take some time and study Bible prophecy. Um, so many people say, yeah, 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 I've read the Bible, but they really haven't looked hard at all the prophecies of the Bible that have come to pass hundreds of years after the prophecy was given with great specificity, great clarity. Um, uh, again, you, I gave you Isaiah 46, that that's, goes with this, but also Isaiah 48 verses five through seven, the prophet Isaiah says, I have even from the beginning declared it to thee before it came to pass, I showed it to you. Lest thou shouldest say, mine idol hath done them and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. The people of Israel were, can you believe it? They were saying, um, we prayed for that and look, Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch did it for us. And the Lord says, I'm kind of tired of you giving credit to your idols for things that have happened. I'm the one who did that. So the Lord says, I'm gonna take that argument away from you. So I will declare what happens in the future. And, um, and then when it happens, you'll know it was me and it wasn't your stupid fake God, Ashtoreth or Baal. That's what he's saying here. Um, verse six, he goes on and says, thou hast heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? He says, now note this, he says, I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. What did they know? Lots of stuff, including the first coming of Christ. The Jews blinded themselves and weren't willing to take the stuff that God had showed them through the prophets, like Zechariah 9.9, the Messiah is gonna come, he's gonna save, he's gonna, he's gonna um, be just, but he's also come lowly, meek, riding on the colt of a donkey. And they said, we're gonna kind of sweep that and hide it, we don't care about that. They, verse seven, are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest them not, lest thou shouldest say, behold, I knew them. In other words, the Lord's taking away argument from the people because he's saying, I will predict what's gonna happen. Bible prophecy sets me apart from all other gods, so-called false gods. Um, the reason to show the future, sometimes uh, the Lord says, was to prove that your idols weren't doing anything, but it was all me. By the way, predictive scams are out there. Be careful, predictive scams. There's this uh, Vox article that maybe you knew from, especially if you're a sports fan. Uh, a tweet went viral in 2014. A guy talked about the Cubs World Series tweet, and it seems so magical how this guy predicted. His tweet was this, and he tweeted this in 2014 about the 2016 World Series. Um, he said, um, Cubs versus Indians in 2016, and then he said, and then the world will end with the score tied in game seven in extra innings. Hashtag apocalypse. You say, well, what's that all about? Well, as it turned out in 2016, it was the Cubs versus Indians first. And they tied in game seven in extra innings. And, uh, and you say, wow, this guy, how did he get that? Um, he got the part about the world ending wrong, sort of. Um, but um, but uh, he didn't get it, but he got everything else right. How did he do it? He was on Sports Center. They took this guy and interviewed him all over sports shows because how did you know this about the, the world shows? Well, actually it came out later. Somebody was able to sort of hack his account and figure out what happened. This guy literally sat for days writing predictive tweets of possible scenarios for the 2016 World Series. 
hundreds and hundreds of these tweets, and he posted them in 2014, but hid them on his account. So you couldn't actually see all his tweets. They were all hidden to everybody else. Then when the World Series happens, he just unhid this one. And it looked like he had tweeted it in 2014, which he did, along with hundreds of other wrong ones. And it made it look like he knew exactly what was gonna happen. And people thought he was Nostradamus. Um, This is people being stupid. The Bible drives the critics crazy because they can't figure out how does God do it? And you've heard me defend you know, different theories about why the Bible, how did Daniel know about Antiochus Epiphanes and all the, the, you know, the uh, Maccabean revolt and how did Daniel predict the Romans and the Greeks and Alexander the Great, like how did he do that? And, and there's been critics who've tried to make it look like Daniel was a forgery and it was written in 90 AD and all that, which is a ridiculous argument because the book of Daniel was in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which we know was 233 BC or earlier. So the arguments are weak and and the Bible is powerful because it's proven to be um, God who tells us the future. That's prophecy. Um, By the way, uh, of all the prophecies of the Bible, one of the great proofs is, is the Jewish people. God said over and over in his word, I'm gonna take my Jews when they rebel, I'm gonna scatter them all over the world for a long, long time, thousands of years, they'll be scattered. And then in the last days, I will start to regather my people. And remember Ezekiel 36 and 37, the prophecy of the dry bones. And he said, I'm gonna see the bones start to clink together in the desert. The knee bone connected to the thigh bone and the thigh bone connected to the hip bone. Remember that whole prophecy? And the bones are walking skeletons, but there's no life breathed in them yet. Um, He's talking about the Jews being gathered out of the world out of just total diaspora. And then when they're clinked together as bones, there's gonna come a point where God's gonna breathe life into those bones and there's gonna be flesh on those bones and life. Um, What are we seeing right now? We've seen the bones come together. May 14th, 1948 was amazing when the Jews became a nation again. The Jews, the Zionist movement, Theodore Herzl and all that, 1700s, they all started gathering again into the Holy Land. There was just a bunch of Bedouins there before the 1917, or the 1700s, I should say. When did the Jews start coming? A couple hundred years ago, they started piling back into Israel, became a nation in 1948. Now they're one of the more powerful nations in the world, just like the Bible says. And as it turns out, the Lord even goes further and says, and the Jews, the world's gonna hate them and the nations of the world are gonna gather against them and even lists the top nations in the Ezekiel 38 prophecy that Russia, Iran and Turkey and other nations are gonna have a confederation of nations and attack Israel in the last days. Isn't it interesting? Who are the people at the northern border of Israel right now in Syria, Russia, Iran, Turkey? All three of those nations are in Syria right now at the northern border of Israel. The stage is set for exactly what the Lord says. It was Count von Zinzendorf. Who's that? Is that somebody from Harry Potter, Brett? No, he was a guy from a long time ago that the critics and the, uh, you know, the um, atheists said, tell us what is the proof of God's existence? And I like what Count von Zinzendorf said. He said two words, the Jews. If you just look at the Jews and what the Bible said would happen about them, you, you have to take the Bible as the word of God. It proves that God is God. So proclaiming future events, that's what Bible prophecy does. Um, it, uh, number two, proves that God is God. And then number three, Bible prophecy prompts us to pray. I'll try to do this one quickly, but 
If you're a Bible prophecy buff, which we all should be, because it's the Bible, um, one of the fruits of that is not to panic or not to promote hype, but what are we supposed to do when we read Bible prophecy? I think we look to Daniel. Daniel was a guy who read Bible prophecy, and what did he do? He prayed. It's, you can jot this down in your notes. It's Daniel chapter nine, verses one through four. Daniel, um, in the first year of Darius the king, he, he, uh, he's there in captivity in Babylon. And he starts reading Bible prophecy. What, what was he reading? The book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote prophetically, the Jews will be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. So Daniel says, in the first year of Darius, I understood by the reading of Jeremiah the prophet that we would be in captivity for 70 years. So he knew, he knew what was going on. So what did he do after that? Did he run around and do a prophecy update? No. Did he get all hyped up and did he start a blog? Nope. I love what Daniel did when he first read Bible prophecy from Jeremiah. It says in Daniel chapter um, uh, nine, verse three, he says, and I, Daniel, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth um, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord God and made confession. I love that Daniel, the, the prophecy that he read from the scriptures prompted him to pray to the Lord. And that's what you and I need to do. See, when you, when you see stuff that's crazy in our world today, you can sit around and moan about it or you can be critical of it. Um, when, when people are saying there are many genders, there's no such thing as a male or female and you know, men can compete and with women and women and men and men can have babies now. And, and, and your temptation is to say, that's nuts. That's crazy, there's two genders. Um, did you ever see that one, I think it was a congressman, he's like, ain't but two genders. <laughs> and he, he goes on this rant, it's kind of funny. Anyway, all that to say, yeah, people struggle with this one, but instead of getting all upset, wouldn't it be great if we started to do what Daniel did and say, we need to pray. We need to pray for this country that's lost. Daniel's stuck in Babylon. He understood how long he'd be there because of reading prophecy, but what was his response? It was prayer. Um, prophecy should make us pray. And by the way, uh, the epicenter of Bible prophecy is Jerusalem. And there's something about that. When we study Bible prophecy, hopefully it makes us do what Psalm 122 verse six says. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. There's a prosperity that goes to the person who's praying for the peace of Jerusalem. So prayer is one of the great fruits of Bible prophecy. At least it should be. Um, number, number uh, what are we on? Number four? Uh, number four, um, Prophecy is to purify the believers. There's a purifying effect on the person who believes in Bible prophecy and what the Bible says, that the Lord could come at any moment, the rapture of the church. By the way, let me clarify something. We clumsily say this and it causes confusion, but is the rapture of the church a coming of Christ? The answer is no. In, in, in the sense of putting his foot down and staying on the earth. Um, the first coming was when he was born in Bethlehem, the first coming. That's, that's the one the Jews missed. They didn't see it. Um, and they pushed the scriptures about lowliness and being wounded and crucified and all that. They pushed that under the rug. Um, the second coming is Revelation 19 when he comes not on a, a little donkey, but he comes on a white horse. The second coming, he's gonna conquer and be king of kings. And, and that's, that's in the future. But the rapture of the church is where we meet him in the air. The Bible says we caught up. The word caught up in the English translation is caught up in the King James. Um, in the Latin Vulgate, it's the word rapture. 
uh, in the Greek, it's the word harpazo, but it just means that the Lord's gonna be in the sky and we're gonna come up and meet him, the rapture of the church. Um, but when you are reading Bible prophecy, one of the things it does is it makes you look forward to and have the hope of Christ coming for his church, the rapture, or the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Either way, that hope that we have is something that purifies. How do I know that? Well, the apostle John writes about this in 1 John chapter 3, verses one through three. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but check, check the, I love this. He says, but we know that when he shall appear that we shall be like him. Is anybody looking forward to that? Is anybody sick of themselves? <laughs> I am. Like, you know, it's, it's just funny when you're a human, you just kind of go, Ugh. and you try to improve yourself, you try to help it, but it's like, Ugh. but when we see him, whether that's the rapture of the church or the tribulation saints that are gonna be living in the tribulation, when you see Christ, guess what? We have this great blessing. When you see him, we'll be like him for we will see him as he is. But then verse three, and it says, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The hope of Christ and us seeing Christ, there's something purifying about that. It's kind of like this. When we talk about the Lord's return and the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ, end time stuff, what it shouldn't do is freak you out or make you get bunkers and guns necessarily and all that stuff. If you wanna do that, you can, but it's not what the Bible says. Um, what, what should we do then uh, when we read Bible prophecy? Well, we should be praying. We already said prompting to pray, but it also, also purifies us when we have the hope of Christ's return. It, it, we'll find ourselves serving the Lord and walking with him. If you believe the rapture of the church could happen this afternoon, would you go after church over to the strip club and hang out and say, well, the Lord's coming, but let's just get one more strip club visit in. I would hope not. You'd say, man, let's, let's have a prayer meeting or a worship service or let's do stuff that's pure because Christ is coming. There's something about the person who knows Jesus is coming soon. He says, and every man that has that hope of the, of the Lord's return has a hope that purifies. I love that. By the way, over and over the Bible says, don't cling to this world. Don't cling to the stuff of this world. Um, set your affections and things above and not of this earth. Um, and that's one of the things prophecy does is it gives you kind of a heavenly eternal mindset. You think of the bigger picture, don't you? And it doesn't become all about this life. Too many people are all about this life. Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking, Brett, you Bible prophecy people, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But I would say you're not gonna be any earthly good until you are heavenly minded. Jesus said, set your affections on things above, not on this earth, because moth and rust and thieves break in and steal this stuff. But when we have that heavenly mindset, we're right in thinking that way. Um, I had an illustration of this when I was a kid growing up. I had a buddy that lived up in Copper, Oregon. Has anybody ever heard of Copper, Oregon? Copper, Oregon was a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. We lived in a town that was in the middle of nowhere. This, this town went out even further in the middle of nowhere. We lived in Roosh, Oregon, population 10 or whatever. I don't know, it was a tiny little town. Um, but uh, I went to Roosh Elementary School, but I remember one kid had to ride like an hour on the bus uh, every morning because he lived up in Copper. Um, I got an old picture of Copper. Um, uh, copper store, and then it got closed, um, you know, like in the 70s. And you say, why are you showing us pictures of Copper? Well, here's the thing. Copper was this cute little town with a little gas station and a little Copper store. 
But eventually the government came in and said, you guys all have to leave. You have to leave this town. And the people were, well, why? Because they were building a dam and in about five years, this town will be 60 feet underwater. And so it was a strange thing to watch. It was almost creepy to watch this little cute little town in Copper. Um, Suddenly people stopped fixing their houses. They stopped mowing their lawns, stopped painting their picket fences. And the town just kind of went downhill real fast. And slowly, one by one, everybody kind of left the town. And sure enough, today, well, there's a boat ramp called the Copper Boat Ramp. And it's, it's actually the old highway that went into the town of Copper, but now it's a boat ramp, <laughs> the road. You drive in and you back your boat in. If you keep going underwater, you drive right into Copper only underwater. <laughs> it's kind of a strange thing. It was really kind of creepy. Uh, in fact, there was a murder there of a family in the same time. Look up the Copper murders. It's really scary stuff. Uh, you know, we, us kids, we thought it was like haunted and all this. Anyway, um, but... I remember when people realized copper was going down, they, they started getting ready to just get out of the town. And, and, and that's, I think that's sort of the way the Lord wants us to live. The Lord would say, you know what? The earth, it's gonna, it's gonna go down. Uh, this earth will pass, heaven and earth will pass away. But live for eternity and don't set your affections on your picket fence here on the earth or your house or your job or your career. You need to set your affection on things that are gonna last, things that are eternal. Bible prophecy kind of automatically makes you realize, you know what? We need to be about heaven and not about this hope of this life, but it's hope in the next that's the most important. Uh, By the way, um, this purifying effect is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. And in 44 through 51, he said, there's a wicked evil servant and then there's a good servant. The good servant is looking and watching and waiting for Christ's return. That's the good servant. The evil servant has their cell phone gone off in church. I mean, I'm sorry, no, I'm just, just kidding. Just, just kidding. Just a little joke there. There's been about four of those go off this service. You guys need to repent. Um, <laughs> but but um, the, the, so the, the, the good servant is out serving and watching. And by the way, if you wanna do an interesting study, count how many times in the Bible the Lord says, watch, be sober, be vigilant. Don't be ignorant concerning the end times and the last days. Sadly, it's the thing the church is not doing for the most part today. The very thing we're told over and over to do, watch, be ready, be sober. So the good servant's watching and serving the Lord, but the wicked servant there in Matthew 24, he says that wicked servant, the evil servant shall say in his heart, oh, the Lord delays his coming, whatever. And he smites his fellow servant and he drinks with the drunkard. And when the Lord of that servant returns, Jesus said, um, he'll find him partying down at an hour when he thinks not. He's not expecting the Lord because he's not watching. And it says the Lord will cut him asunder and will appoint his portion with the hypocrites where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But are you suggesting that people aren't watching for the Lord's return are gonna go to hell? I'm not gonna say that, but this makes it a little bit scary. I wouldn't wanna be the person that's saying party down, the Lord's not coming down and I'm just gonna live my life with the hypocrites. It'd be better to be the servant that's faithful, watching, sober and vigilant. This is not a day to mess around. Well, one more point and then we'll pack it up. And all of these are important points that we just talked about. To proclaim future events, Bible prophecy. To prove that God is God. To prompt us to pray. To purify the believers. But the last and most important one is this. To point us to Jesus Christ. Prophecy is all about Jesus. Prophecy is not to point us to geopolitics and get all excited about that. Prophecy is not about, you know, getting your guns and bunker and Cheerios. That's not what prophecy is about. Prophecy is about Jesus. In fact, I love what, you know, when Revelation 
chapter 19 is kind of that radical end of the Antichrist scripture. Um, and then Jesus returns in Revelation 19. The tribulation period is over and then it starts talking about Jesus. But that last phrase in Revelation 19.10 is, is the operable phrase. It says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you study Bible prophecy, it should be all about Jesus. We're looking for Jesus, we're worshiping Jesus. The point of prophecy is to point to Jesus. Um, you know what's amazing is, is the, the, the Jews, I told you, they, they kind of missed the first coming. And they could have known from those very 300 specific prophecies. They should have known Palm Sunday. They should have known the very day. It goes back to Luke chapter uh, 19, verses 41 and 42, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. It says, when he came near, he was come near and he built the city and he wept over it. Why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem? He said, if thou hadst known in this thou, thou day, you know, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. The Jews didn't get it that Jesus was the Messiah because they didn't care about Old Testament Hebrew Bible prophecies concerning his first coming. So Jesus is weeping because they missed it. They missed the joy of the Messiah coming. You say, well, that's bad for the Jews. Good for us, we know the Bible. But here's my concern. Is the church ready for the second coming? Are we just like the Jews? Sadly, that's the problem. When the church bails out on Bible prophecy and reading about the future coming of the Lord, the second coming, we're gonna be just, a lot of the church is gonna be just like the Jews. And they won't be looking for Christ or, or the signs of the times because they haven't been reading about Bible prophecy. So even as the Jews missed the first coming, I think the church is gonna, some of us are gonna even miss the second coming because we couldn't care less what the Bible says. Um, now, I gotta say this, before, uh, before we are too hard on the Jews, um, we have to be careful as Gentiles, because yeah, yeah, those Jews missed it. But we're just as ignorant in some ways, and so the Bible says this in Romans 11. And this is good news for the Jews, by the way. It says, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, um, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. He's talking to Gentiles, us, don't be um, you know, prideful about this or arrogant. That blindness in part has happened to Israel and the full, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. When is the fullness of the Gentiles in the end of the church age? Anybody? The rapture of the church. When the church age is over, the church gets raptured. So at the fullness of the Gentiles, what's gonna happen? The eyes of the Jews will be opened during the tribulation period. And it says, verse 26, so all of Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion a deliverer, that's Jesus the Messiah, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, that's Israel. For this is my covenant to them when I shall take away their sins. The Jews missed it the first time, but in the tribulation period, God is gonna reinvest into the Jewish people and their eyes will be opened. And those bones of the Valley of Dry Bones that I talked about earlier, they're gonna, the Lord's gonna breathe life into the Jews and they're gonna see that Jesus is the Messiah. And that'll be in his second coming. You and I, however, should not make the same mistake of the Jews in the first coming, but know the days and the signs of the times. You are not supposed to be ignorant of this. That's how this verse starts. Don't be ignorant about that. So studying Bible prophecy is important. It's not a waste of time, like Rick Warren said. Rick Warren in his book, uh, Purpose Driven Life, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in that book, of course, but there's one page I'd like to rip out. And it's the page where he spent time talking about Bible prophecy is a waste of time. 
If you don't believe me, look it up. It's easy to find on Google. Um, but he's one of those pastors. Uh, Bible prophecy is too controversial, too divisive. So we're not gonna talk about those scriptures. Um, that's one fourth of the Bible that Rick won't talk about. It's a bummer. Um, Bible prophecy is important. It's not a waste of time. And the Bible says, don't be ignorant about these things. And you say, well, Brett, why are you telling us all this now? Because the rest of the book of Zechariah, as we study through it, is some heavy duty Bible prophecy. We're gonna talk about some powerful things in the future events that's gonna happen in Zechariah. Um, we're gonna start and pick it up in chapter eight on Wednesday night and we'll continue all the way to the end uh, and it'll be powerful. Uh, so let's, let's em embrace it, embrace the Bible prophecy because it's good. Hey, um, the Bible says, um, you know, the church that has ears to hear, let them hear what the spirit says to the church. I think this is an important one for the greater church, not just Athey Creek, but for all of us to get back to the book, get back to the Bible and study Bible prophecy in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Lord, how thankful we are for your word that's living and powerful, miraculous. Lord, we see your miraculous fingerprints on this word. I pray, Lord, that um, you'd give us just a new respect and reverence for your word. And as we study it, Lord, I pray that like Paul, we would not shun to declare the whole counsel, the full word of God. Help us not to pick and choose our topics, but help us to let your word dictate the pace and the frequency of the topics as we go through your word together. Bless this time, Lord, um, and bless this church as we continue to plug away in our Through the Bible study. Give us understanding. Give us application now of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.